everyone, this is Fashion Knowledge and my name is Bata Vinchuk. I am a Berlin-based critical fashion practitioner and I work across education, research and strategy. I lecture on fashion, design and digital cultures and I run a consultancy and research laboratory called Unfolding Strategies. In each episode, together with my students and fellow researchers and practitioners, we discuss the fashion's most urgent issues and try to reimagine the socially just, sustainable and digital fashion futures. Hi, welcome uh, everyone to the uh, new Fashion Knowledge podcast episode. Today, our special guest is Shinuk Filik Nemiranda. She is a Rotterdam-based design researcher and critical fashion practitioner. Uh, her work is situated between the fashion system and digital cultures, and she is analyzing, translating, and visualizing how they intersect. Shinook has collaborated with such institutions as Warehouse, Cooper Hewitt, National Museum of African American History and Culture, and many, many more. In 2019, she graduated from Artis University of the Arts, where she developed her ongoing research project titled Algorithmic Gaze. I hope that today we will make sure that everyone knows what algorithmic gaze is, how it is connected to fashion. And I also hope that we will touch upon digital literacy and our awareness of one's agency and the fashion uh, digital ecosystem. Welcome, Shinook. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, a pleasure. I really, I really, I really like your work. And, you know, we spoke about it uh, before, and I was very lucky to interview you before for my research. But, like, I never really seen something that inspired my students so much. Uh, it's really been like a massive inspiration for them, you know, you're writing your research. And I think also the fact that, you know, you just not so long ago graduated, I think for them, it's very also like, you know, admirable um, and they can like really, you know, see themselves closer to you. So for them, it's quite exciting that I, uh, that I introduce your text in the, uh, in the teaching, either at university or also when I have meetings with companies. But yeah, I, I was thinking about our talk today and, you know, um, when we probably met first time, I don't know, maybe about a year ago, there weren't so many conversations about tech and fashion. And now we have, you know, um, so, um, so much of it. So fashion and tech or fashion tech that became like a whole, uh, whole thing, you know, once what could be defined as dresses with LED lights, because that what wearable fashion, tech fashion was in the beginning, today got very complicated with all discussions about metaverse, AI, algorithm, and so on. So maybe we can start by thinking out loud about how fashion and digital are connected or where do they intersect? Yeah, so fashion has willingly and unwillingly become inextricably linked with digital culture because both are part of our everyday lives both are a source of communication and both help us assert ourselves and our imagined identities in public space. So we went from what you just said, fashion and tech, meaning let's in incorporate some hardware technology into fabrics to enhance our bodily efficiency to a metaverse in which we communicate with and are impacted by the way we see and envision fashion as in garments, but also in their social framework. And because we're now so connected anywhere and everywhere all the time, and this interaction, we're kind of approached as a full-time consumer. 
So for me, um, fashion online has always, or the online space, I should say, has always formed itself in kind of a safe space because it allows you to construct your own narrative. So either through self-publishing or posting on Instagram or having a blog, making your own website, or just being part of online subcultures, um, you can choose to present yourself or show off your unhinged <laughs> realistic self. But ultimately, digital culture allows for multiple ways of expressing yourself. And I think that's where and why it collides so well with fashion. But what we're experiencing now to an extensive degree is the digital space being commercialized or co-opted, which has made it anything but a safe space in the sense that users are turned into a product. So almost every login, click, notification, confirmation ultimately guides us towards some type of consumption and whether it is my time, my personal data or an actual product, like something's gotta give. And I think fashion in its multimodal forms online hones in on that. Mm -hmm. Because you said it's like, it's, it's about consuming and also about being on one hand. So on one hand, you're doing those things, you're, I don't know, as always people say, expressing yourself, you're communicating, you mm -hmm. are, when you're doing fashion online or yourself and fashion online. And then at the same time, it becomes consumption. So being becomes consuming, right? This is yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. They merged, they've totally and, merged. And so, and in your work, like, because if you're interested in fashion technology, people sometimes think about very complicated things and algorithmic gaze as a term can also can be a little bit scary, particularly to mm -hmm. people who have nothing to do with tech and algorithms and maths. But in your work, you you like focus on the very mundane activities such as looking and scrolling at content. Why, why is it so important to just consuming and being together? Mm. Because we now live with the notion that the individual like in a consumer society must be constructed in order to partake in this digital realm. I think it's sensory experience therefore needs to be critically assessed. So I think power lies in the mundane. So power to condition, but also power to be conditioned. And we don't really overthink the mundane things we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and as such, we kind of discard these actions without questioning them. So this means they're also the easiest way to exert subliminal influence. So content-wise, we are exposed to an oversaturated landscape of visuals. So we scroll through a huge amount of images and impressions every day and tend to only linger on the things that trigger us in some kind of visceral response, right? So somehow we uh, tend to think, or at least I did, that only those specific images have some type of influence over us. But the recurring images, the styles, the advertising, if you will, we, encou we encountered through our screen culture conditions our behavior and to, to a certain extent thus also our consumption. So deciphering what you're seeing and putting that into a wider context helps us understand why we are seeing what we're seeing, so to speak. Okay, so kind of to dumb it down, let's say that because you're you're talking about the subliminal aspect of it, ah, that's yeah. <laughs> as we do. So to kind of dumb it down basically, let's say that I'm scrolling for content and there are certain things that are more 
I always like to use the word effective in this context. So let's say there are certain mm -hmm. images uh, or videos now because there's more and more videos. So there's some kind of image either moving or not that mm -hmm. affects a certain way. And I, for example, can recall a mug that was I was very infatuated with and this mug was stalking me on uh, yeah. various social media platforms, but mainly on Instagram. And I really liked this mug. It was super impractical, very chunky, very like kind of, it looked like a big uh, mug cloud. And oh. it was extremely overpriced. Do you know this mug? Have you seen it? I don't know. I I don't know. I have. I think I have, but not like super. It might <laughs> it be sounds one of, like a very cozy mug. It, it was a very cozy mug. It's not uh, advertisement, by the way. It was a very cozy mug, and this mug was very was very somehow seductive to me. And I also was overexposed to it. So there was this mm -hmm. thing that we call in psychology, the heuristic of representation. It's like with uh, Taylor Swift songs, you hear it or are in a graphic once and there is a repetitive course and you first don't like it, but after hearing it 20 times, your brain is like, oh, that's nice. So yeah. there is this uh, massive power of repetition. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know, and I was thinking, what can I? Obviously, I can now. There are more options to opt out, not to see it. But nevertheless, at this kind of current momentum, I didn't know about any ways how to, you know, how to get rid of it, how to report it, or what kind of settings I can put in my smartphone to avoid it. Um, now, similarly, a very bizarre theoretical books are following me on my computer uh, desktop on many websites. So, you know, I was thinking if it would be a person, we could put like a restraining order, but with the digital environment, we cannot do pretty much anything. So I think it's always a question, you know, do we even have the choice to choose uh, what we see? And if it's actually, uh, you said culture that conditions it, or maybe it's actually companies that also are partaking and making culture, but they're the one conditioning us in that way. So, yeah, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Do we even have the choice to choose what we see? such a big question um so when you click the terms and condition buttons on the websites we visit we're basically wavering any type of online restraining order we could get um which as at this point i honestly hope someone comes up with a scheme or some type of version that we can employ because we need it um but as you just mentioned like new media has allowed for this influencing to become um much more unobtrusive than ever before so it therefore creates the kind of the illusion of independent choice making um so the question do we even have a choice to choose what we see i mean yes and no so yes we have a choice if we choose not to use online media or use or only use it to research or find something like very specific like we know where to find it and we'll look for it um no if you're using social media on the regular, because when we utilize these digital tools, such as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, to assert the way we think, feel, look, what we like, we object, we subject ourselves to, um, it's called kind of like networked habitus, which is basically a filter bubble conditioned by external and often commercial companies and forces to make it easier for companies to target us through promotional practices. So it makes you feel like you have a choice through um, account settings, tags, hashtags, search bars, etc. But based on your digital footprint, everything you see is kind of pre-curated to fit into a certain habitus, so environment. 
which makes it easier for your online persona to be put into a target group, which makes it easier for companies to kind of harass you with these promotions and images and consumptional goods. Mm -hmm. But like, so if we bring it a bit to fashion or any creative industries, something mm -hmm. that I often discuss in the past with uh, people I work with um, is Pinterest threat, as I like to call yeah. it. Uh, so this kind of a sea of sameness, because there is this illusion, there is everything out there. And there's only mm -hmm. slightly, I think, curated is a very beautiful term to call those things. I think mm -hmm. very often people think it's... Uh, kind of costumized for them, yeah, uh, yeah. but they don't think that they are perceived as a consumer here all the time. Mm -hmm. They're thinking about themselves as an individual, uh, oh. you know, a single unit. Um, and this, you know, this threat is, uh, is particularly visible in creative industries where you have a bunch of people referring to visual culture nonstop in order to produce new things in this world, either 2D or 3D and fashion mm -hmm. industry the most common thing is to create a mood board. So you just select some images that are somehow for you connected in order to extract some sort of mood or some kind of aesthetic uh, or yeah. some narrative. And then you try to channel it into a garment or a collection because these are those typical units uh, you know, that designers do create in companies or, or individually. Um, but what I see more and more often is that the particular group of people will be showing exactly same uh, references, exactly same things. So it's like kind of becoming the sea of sameness. It's like always going to one tiny shop and cooking amazing new dinner out of it every couple of days uh, based on very, very uh, basic products. And uh, very often even, you know, people working in creative teams or students are surprised that they bring such similar um, similar um, kind of visual content. And it's probably mm -hmm. because there are people who, you know, live in the similar spaces, just like geographically, they have similar yeah. kind of situation and environment and context. So they're targeted, um, targeted as a similar group. So I'm curious, you know, how it affects people like consumers, makers, humans, and particularly those working in creative industries, you know, how does it impact our cognition? Yeah, so I think it's spot on what you're describing and it's basically all in rendition of what I then call the algorithmic case. But in short, I think um, it, its impact is limiting and polarizing and it leaves so little space for creative exploration because through this kind of like pre-curated digital landscape um, that you just described, you're subjected to the algorithmic gaze, which is, which basically describes the complexity surrounding the rhythmic ability of the algorithm. And it forms a new media infrastructure for what I like to call a modern form of visual propaganda. So this, this, um, sense of democracy or creativity is lost when you encounter things you like that um, just revolve around what you seem to like and as you're liking what you're seeing you're not really almost allowed to venture outside of that bubble mm -hmm. um, and this new media infrastructure kind of it's built around 
ways that trigger you to buy, right? So um, working with your preferences and your preferences only then closes kind of an imaginary gate for you to cross over to another store with different products that you find. And to, for you, it minimizes the ability for you to find flavors that you might like or have never been in contact with all in the means of cultivating habits in order to gain profit by these bigger companies, right? So what you do end up with is this um, consumption of communal aesthetics, I think it's called. It's, it's like a whole theory of how everybody starts liking the same things, but also starts looking the same and also then starts to create the same type of collections and with the same aesthetics or the same vibes as they call it. Mm. It's kind of boring. It's yeah, it's kind of boring, but it also, you know, poses the threat to society and to the politics because then we only talk to, you know, people that we like and people that speak like us and look like yeah. us, the same mugs on us. And if we do that, then we are not a part of society. We're really living in a bubble. And uh, this is not really, and then if we do it as designers, then we are not doing what I like to quote. It's an excellent book by uh, Escobar. We're not, you know, partaking in design for the pluriverse, but we're kind of creating, you know, uh, a bubble for a few or a bubble that's going to be imposed onto many as a kind of definite, amazing uh, aesthetic, what kind of modernism was in a way. But as you were yeah. describing those flavors, I was thinking about, you know, my experience of watching Netflix, because if you switch mm -hmm. to somebody's Netflix, it's going to be extremely yeah. different. And for example, yeah. it's also super gendered and it will be like, oh, there's nothing to watch. And then you go on your own and be like, oh, one of those yeah. 20 clusters of consumers, that's totally me. Uh, they yeah. really build it. But when I used to go to film festivals, my mother would always ask me, why do you go to this film festival? It's like a very alternative art house cinema festival uh, mm -hmm. where I used to work for years and, and before I used to attend. She says, why do you go to them when you don't like the most of the movies? I said, that's the point because you kind of bounce yeah. Think about why you don't like it, and it kind of you know makes you think, makes you talk, makes you exchange ideas, and you kind of I don't know, you grow and you develop your preferences from that. So I mean, kind of, yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean exactly what you're saying. Like you learn from the things you don't like. Like my um, dad used to tell me, like with jobs, for instance, when I didn't like a job or. Um, I didn't like the environment or the people. I don't know when when it didn't work out in the way that I imagined it worked out. He said, "Well, it's important because now you need to, now you know what you don't like in order to find what you do like." Mm. And I think that is a good way to um, maybe look at online or like virtual spaces for us to. Be be able to honestly or like democratically I should say explore this space we need the good and the bad because there's no there's no fairy tale or way of living if there is no if there's only good then there's no story mm -hmm. yeah but it feels like this is the fundamental uh, you know the kind of fundamental of UX and 
Mm -hmm. uh, online that there's the saying that good technology, the best technology is the invisible technology, which mm -hmm. is very scary to me because that if you don't mm -hmm. see what is it, it feels like, you know, kind of secret surveillance control kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, or this ease with which you buy something only with two clicks and you don't even know how it happened. So this, yeah. uh, this also, I don't know, I'm kind of having flashbacks from, I don't know, <laughs> stories from the past today sorry for that but it's like no it's I, fine. I, I, I have a friend who never closes the fridge because her fridge uh, was automatic when she was raised so for her all the fridges they close on themselves but this is not how most of the fridges wow work. really yeah it used to close itself so she never closes okay. the door she really had to put a lot of conscious effort in actually closing the fridge because she was she believed that the uh it, it the fridge closes itself so it's like a very you know it's a simple everyday object that we use uh, but the same happens with the digital environment we almost expect everything to open and close on its own that's everything the mundane like yeah that's yeah, the mundane so. in 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 favor of efficiency so mm -hmm. everything with quote-unquote efficiency is supposed to make these invisible technologies or these invisible strategies okay because they make your life better right and they make it easier for you to navigate your way through the online space which um if they're so transparent that they're, if they're so invisible there's no transparency no mm. honest yeah which makes it hard for like me as an individual to understand why something is happening mm. um but then I'm also an overthinker, so I use <laughs> so <laughs> that that kind of stuff like lingers with me. So it makes me want to find out why. And if I can't find it, I always find it a bit um, dubious. Mm -hmm. And but then you said we should like okay. So we're you're saying that the way the things are online, uh, we should be kind of suspicious of them or like critically assess them. Like mm -hmm. what. Why would we even do it? And how do you do it yourself? Um, in terms of knowing why and what, how, how stuff works online? Yeah. yeah. So I consider digital literacy as the main tool towards digital agency. So everything we see like has become clickable and immediately stoppable, as you just said. And through this construct, of efficiency, we experience this one-on-one -on -one engagement with fashion through online media, right? And in doing so, it's presented to us as this highly personalized act of service. So I think our digital dimension needs us to actively interpret and deconstruct our online environment. And it's all consuming mesh of interconnected networks as they operate in this economy based on aesthetically connecting to its audience by literally selling us our personalized scene. So in my practice, I focus on ways of gaining or at least up, trying to uphold this agency. Um, and through workshops in which we try to unpack and have a conversation about the good or bad of algorithmic mediation, um, I try to hone in on what it's like to have digital agency and how we can get there through digital literacy. So in these workshops or exercises, these participants are asked to 
observe, archive, and analyze their scrolling behavior, which allows you to create kind of an overview of this visual vortex that you're sucked into while using your phone or tablet or computer. So it then also allows you to cross-reference and see the development of your triggers, right? But the main thing that happens during these sessions, what I've noticed is that it generates a conversation, which in my opinion is the most important part because that's the part you take home and those are the stories or thoughts or experiences that are meant to be shared beyond the screen. Um, as for instance, the story you just shared, uh, shared about the um, refrigerator <laughs> of your friend. So this digital literacy is important because a part of us communicates through this digital means on a day-to-day -day basis and thus exploring the environment and especially lowering its threshold is important. And in a sense, active interpretation can be a liberating act. Mm -hmm. How come the liberating mm -hmm. act? And what, how, how does it liberate? Or what I do you think? Mean because that? it gives you, yeah, it, it gives you a sense, yeah. Active interpretation gives you um, choice. Easily say this. Yeah, it gives you the, or it helps you to render when something actually is a choice or is your choice, or is your choice conditioned, or is it like, mm. I think helping to know what you're seeing and why you're seeing something mm. um, gives you like a little bit more time or allows you, or yeah. So if you could <laughs> tell now to, to people who are listening, what would be like a one, simple exercise to do at home to to kind of practice your you know your agency online what what would it be what would be like your tips what can people do apart from participating i don't know in a workshop uh ah, yeah. what, okay. what can one do what can one do um, i'm not sure they're like super concise tips but like is the smart home and the smart environment plays into your day-to-day -day structure and it hones in on that so the main thing would be to try and deregulating your way of being in order to deregulate the algorithm that surrounds you. So there are small steps such as um, switching up when and where you're browsing, what browser you're using, turning off tracking systems in terms of geolocations, using a VPN, um, using multiple email addresses for different accounts, um, knowing or, well, yeah, I know that they're convenient but once you stop using online wish lists and signing up for newsletters in order to receive discounts codes, you also notice a vast difference. And in terms of habit, I like to turn off push notifications. But in all honesty, I think, or I'm convinced that the best way to exercise agency is through literacy. So knowing what you're seeing and why you're seeing, um, because all these companies will just keep inventing new ways to get our attention. And I think, was it? Balenciaga that just announced that they're creating a dedicated business to explore marketing and, and commerce in the metaverse. So mm -hmm. I think algorithms are getting more flexible and the metaverse will get more and more all encompassing. 
So as they're starting to act more like humans, it's important to uncover at least the algorithmic dialects. Mm. Yeah, that's 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 interesting, particularly you know when we shift this conversation from uh, Web 2.0 to uh, to the to the next step. So, so the mm -hmm. kind of the the new iteration and the and the metaverse. Um, do you have you have you thought about algorithmic gaze in the context of what is or what will be the metaverse and digital fashion? Um. Yeah. So. Not explicitly or like in its final form, but I do think we still now have the option to kind of like step away from screen culture or like if we really have had enough of it or if we feel like, for instance, our habits are too much conditioned by this, um, by the algorithms that follow us on a day-to-day -day basis, we're able to shut things off. Like I'm able to still put my phone away or shut my computer screen off or like be done with it for that day and go read a book. But if um, we become totally dependent on the digital public in order to be social and kind of like start to envision this ready player one, um, environment where the only social interaction we have is through this metaverse then I think in terms of what the algorithm algorithmic gaze will turn into will be a way more um, sensory experience so instead of just seeing like probably also being able to feel smell sense um, and that also them being directed and conditioned by commercial forces. So, <laughs> yeah, this is on one hand very utopian and exciting to see this kind of sensory exploration and to see yeah. how this kind of digital, digital, sensory, visceral experiences can move on. But then also yeah. how it's co-opted and how it comes part of, uh, I don't know, potentially surveillance state. This is another take on exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, dystopian but yeah uh, mm -hmm. let's see how it will be thank you so much uh, for talking to me uh, Shinduk 